Okay, yes, it, it, I know it's, it's like, it's supposed to be 82 degrees today, and it's like 90 in here already. Just hold your breath. You'll be okay. All right, so, uh, the last time I wore this shirt, the guy that shoots all of our video, Paul, he had a heart attack. So I haven't worn this shirt for like six or eight months, but I'm wearing it today, we're going to see what happens. If you walk down the hallway and somebody like falls out of that room and laying in the hallway, call 911. Right, Paul? We good? <laughs> All right, if you couldn't make it to Pumpkin Killing last week, uh, we have a quick little video. Donald was up late last night putting it together, so we'll, we'll just show it to you, and then I'll talk about it after it's over. So here you go, Pumpkin Killing. It actually worked at the end. I know you're very excited about the trebuchet. This, this is why wars took forever in the Middle Ages. It's like, come on, oh, I just killed all my guys. What do I do? It's crazy. What we would really like to start doing with the whole pumpkin killing idea is actually, because a lot of people come, they, they really enjoy it. Next year, what we'd really like to do is find a place where we can invite our entire community to, out to it. It'd be great if we could get like the riverbed or something. Wouldn't it be great if we had a place where we could actually do the carving, there's bathrooms, and, uh, and the launch all at the same spot, right? All right, so keep your ears open for something like that, because if we can find a place like that next year, we'd actually just go to our city and invite the entire city out to it. It'd be a whole lot of fun. So... Awesome, right? Yeah, good. Uh, I have one, actually two things. Number one is this. Uh, our great experiment at first service for doing childcare first service is over. It's nobody brings kids to first service, so there you go. So if you come to first service and you don't have childcare, it's your own fault because you didn't come. And Yeah, all right. <laughs> Welcome to Element. If you are new, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you do have a smartphone, you get an app on your smartphone. It's called Uversion. You can click on Live. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You get the sermon notes and the verses and the questions. And I have one more thing before we start, and that is this. Uh, Tuesday, vote. All right? Just go, go out and vote. I got... Four points for this. See, a four-point sermon before the sermon. Number one, uh, I think we can all agree on these four things. Number one, pray. All right, pray for our country's leaders. Pray for you know, elections and pray that our, that our country wants to follow who God is. Second thing in this is then vote. And, you know, pay attention to issues pay, and, and actually go and actually do it. Number three, be civil. You don't seem very excited about that. <laughs> be civil. All right, good, all right. <laughs> And number four, remember, it doesn't matter what side of the spectrum people fall on, they are welcome at Element because the gospel is for all people. So we love them, which goes back to being civil. <laughs> Yay! Election years. Oh, I'm going to kill somebody. You know, who's got that sign in their lawn? I didn't know my neighbors were crazy, you know. <laughs> Why don't you stand there reading God's word? We'll get started here. This is Proverbs chapter 20, verse 7. And it says, the righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we would be a people who honor you, that the integrity that we walk in is what you have actually bestowed upon us, and that our lives be things that completely honor you by how we live and what we say and what we do and those things we passed on to the children and generations after us. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Have a seat. 
this is Genesis week 40. Uh, we are transitioning at this point, not just from Abraham to Isaac, but really from Isaac to his kids after him. And today, in just a few moments, this is probably going to take a really strange turn for you, but that's okay. You can go with me. This is something I wanted to talk to you about all the way back at week 7 of Genesis. And here you're going, week 7 of Genesis. I don't even know what that was. Good. You'll remember as soon as we start talking about this. Now, a little bit of background. At this point, you have Isaac. He is Abraham's son, and he is going through three major life changes in his life in chapter 25. Uh, he buries his dad. He defines the quality of relationship with his family, his brother. We saw that last week. And today, uh, his wife gets pregnant. So he's going to have two sons. Well, his wife's going to have two sons, obviously. You know, he just was involved in a little bit of it, but she gets the rest of it. Okay. Now, sociologists and psychologists have actually come and they've defined the 10 most stressful life events. I'll give you the top six in order. Number one is divorce. Number two is loss of a loved one. Number three is losing a job. Number four is wedding planning. <laughs> number, number five is pregnancy. And number six is family strife. Now, Isaac has three of the top six in chapter 25. If you take chapter 24, he has four of the top six. And as you get a little bit farther into his life, you'll see his family doesn't do anything to help him out in this at all. They kind of make things worse. So open your Bibles to Genesis 25. Today is life stage three. We're only going to hit three whole verses because we're like that here. And uh, we will talk about a whole lot of stuff. Uh, chapter 25, verse 19 starts like this. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, of the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And so Rebekah, we saw a couple weeks ago, she's actually a really good lady. She's, she loves God. She loves her husband. It's not till later that everything goes all crazy. And this is kind of what happens in marriages. You know, you get married first couple of years. You're like, oh, yeah, I love them. They're great. Then years go by. You get a little bit lazy, and things go crazy. So stop getting lazy and start investing into your spouse. Amen, let's pray. No, okay. Here we <laughs> what happens now is that you see is actual Isaac's wife is barren, just like his mom was. They have the same issue. So what does he do? What is he going to do in this? Well, he does the right thing. Verse 21, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, he, what he does, he doesn't try to figure it out on his own like Abraham and Sarah did. He learned from their mistake. He loved his parents. He honored his parents. He followed his parents' God, but he didn't make the same mistakes. Some of our lives become very hard and very complicated because we don't follow our parents' advice. They've gone through some really hard stuff, and they say, don't do this. And we go, okay, and then we do it anyway. Just a couple weeks ago, I was talking to this young lady. Uh, she ended up sleeping with her boyfriend. Uh, she got pregnant, and she told me the story about her mom, how her mom got pregnant very young, and then her mom didn't marry the guy she had a string of boyfriends that came through the house and she's angry and resentful about her mom and she's like you know i can't really stand my mom was like this and yet now she's in the same place where she's done the exact same thing it's not that there's not redemption that because there is redemption jesus offers redemption for all things but she did the same mistake her parents did what you see happens for isaac instead of running off and finding another girl like abraham and sarah did he actually is a believer he prays for his wife and he asks god to give her a baby now, back in week seven, what we talked about in Genesis was one flesh. And it's like, we're going to have the sex talk again? Yes and no. It's going to be a little bit more than that. Uh, what you see in this is Isaac waited for Rebecca 40 years. 
40 years. And then the idea is that they get married, they have some issues, but instead of bailing, he starts to pray for her. He starts to try and do some things right in the midst of it. And they begin to do it right, which seems so foreign to us today. So today we're going to have the talk. And I know you're thinking, how come like once a year at Element we get the talk? Because you need the talk once a year. And, all, and when I give the talk, I offend everybody because the people who need to hear the talk are all mad at me. And the people who don't need to hear the talk, and they're like, oh, I'm married, I don't want to hear the talk. Well, they're mad at me because I make them hear about it again. So you're all going to be mad, and we'll just be fine and go with it today, and then next week we'll move on. Pay attention to what I talk about today, though. All right. Uh, I know a lot of you probably grew up, and you never had the talk with, with your parents. Clinical psychologists even have a hard time having the talk with their kids. And so when you look at how Isaac and Rebecca did it, it seems kind of unreasonable to our culture today. You know, there are a whole lot of people who don't really want to, really want to hear what the Bible says about this subject. It's sex. Is, it's powerful, and it's fascinating, and it's mysterious, and it's exciting. It's a remarkable subject. It's unlike anything else, and sometimes it's actually even kind of funny. You know, one of the things that people do a lot in Christianity is they don't like its view of sexuality. They hate its view of sexuality, which, to be truthful, is complete freedom in marriage. Okay, complete freedom in marriage. Imagine a conversation today between Isaac and somebody from our culture. You know, it'd be like, well, you know, you weren't actually virgins when you got married, were you? Well, yeah, I saw my parents' mistakes, and they talked to me about God, and I, and I believed, and I followed, and so I was a virgin when I got married. You know, and not like I put it on the wedding program, two virgins getting married, but, you know, we, we were virgins, and that's how, and no way, you must have been the only one in the Middle East. I mean, that's, that'd be kind of like the conversation that would take place. And when you ask people today, they say, well, I can never really do life that way, you know, with this proper stewardship of sexuality as the Bible intends. But honestly, how is our culture's way any better today? It's not. It's not our divorce rates over 50%. There is tons of regret. There is loss of hope in relationships all the time. I was reading this thing by Andy Stanley a little bit ago, and he gave a talk kind of like, not like this, but kind of like this, I suppose. He probably wouldn't say the same things I say, hopefully. But, you know, anyway, and he's talking to these people about navigating, you know, their sexual life and all this. And after it's over, there's this lady. She's in her 30s. She comes up to him, and she says, I want to talk about this sex thing. She goes, what you said tonight, that's not for people like me, right? That's for teenagers. That's not people in my, this lady had been in the place in her life. She'd been married. She's got, she'd gotten divorced. She's now dating. She's out in the world. She said, that surely doesn't apply to me. That's just those teenagers. And instead of answering the question, I thought what Andy Stanley did was brilliant. He asked her a question. And this is the question. He said, has sex outside of marriage made your life better or just more complicated? And she tears up and she said, more complicated. See, what you have to understand is we can tell ourselves it's just bodies, it's just tissue, it's just nerve endings, but we know it's not. Sex is not just sex. And whatever you think about the Bible or the scriptures, we all somehow know this because there's something deep around this issue. It's more than biology because sex has to do with God. And believe it or not, the Bible has a lot to say about God and sex. If you go to the book of Genesis, there's a ton of sex in Genesis. After you get out of Genesis, you go through the rest of the first five books, the Torah, and you see there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament. Rabbis who counted out these commandments said the first commandment listed, not in priority, but the first commandment listed in the scriptures wasn't love God or no idols. They said the very first commandment in Genesis is when God says be fruitful and multiply. That actually has to deal with sex and children. Isaac prays for his wife. I think you might have gotten that. The first command had to do with sex. You know, when God creates man, the first time in the Bible that man is recorded to speak, he may have spoken before this, but the first time words are recorded that comes out of his mouth, it's when he sees a woman. 
It's like, wow, she's, an, she's all furry like an animal. That is awesome. You know, I mean, he's really excited. You've got to imagine the moment. The, the word for man is the word ish. The word for woman is the word isha in the scripture. God brings Eve to Adam. And you've got to remember, Adam's sleeping. He's probably a little groggy. God creates this woman. Adam wakes up. He's not seen anything like this before. And God says, what should we name her? And in the scriptures, it says, let's call her isha because she came from ish. That's, that's literally the Hebrew. In our vernacular, it'd be like he's going, whoa, man, whoa, man. Let's call her woman. That's not, and I'm sure in her mind, she's thinking, I'm not going to get any great Hallmark cards from this guy. You know, now, open your Bibles to Genesis 2, because if you're in 25, just flip back over to Genesis 2. This is the verse that we looked at last week a little bit. This is right after this happens, Genesis 2, 24. And it goes on to say this after this happens. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The idea behind this is they leave their parents to create a new primary loyalty, a new union. And that union gets expressed in sexual intimacy, one flesh. In, in the Bible, from the very beginning, sex is a sacrament. It's this outward sign of an inward reality of the spiritual state. In other words, sex, somehow in the middle of it, you are glued, you are joined, you are knit at the soul with another person, whether you want to be or not. In other words, when you engage in sexual intimacy, your body is making a promise whether you intend it to or not. It is not just sex. The very next verse, verse 25 in chapter 2, says this, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. A lot of people don't expect to find something like that in the Bible. I love talking about this during weddings. Some people, like you guys, probably think about it, talk about it too much, but whatever, we're, we're good with it. It's in the Bible. We can talk about it. You know what's going on in this verse, though? It's this idea that there's safety and vulnerability and honesty and openness and courage in relationship because Adam and Eve made this promise. Adam said, Eve, I am yours forever, yours. Eve says, Adam, I'm yours forever, yours. Now, it might have been easier for them because there was nobody else really at that point, but, you know, that's the idea. They made a commitment to each other. Go to Genesis 4, verse 1. It says, now Adam knew his wife, and she, Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help from the Lord. So you've got to say, I've gotten a man with the help from the Lord. Who does she not mention? Adam. It's like a ding to his ego. I was there. I was helping. Yeah, you were. That's, that's what we call helping right there. You know, she does mention God. Why does she mention God? Because God is involved. See, this whole idea that sexual intimacy is, is a full, rich phenomenon where you are connected to another person and to God. She is connected to God, to her son, and to her husband. Sex always involves God because God is our creator, whether we like it or not. And God is deeply concerned that sex be expressed, enjoyed, savored, relished in accordance with his design. Now, open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in the New Testament. Save so a smartphone, you're like, bink, and you're already there because it's like in the live notes. It's better if you flip. Those pages sound good when they flip. They actually blow some air up on you too, so whatever. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. And leave your finger here because we'll come back to this and, and go over it a couple times. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. It's, Paul starts and he says, flee from sexual immorality. Now, a lot of times in our culture today, you know, people will look at this and they'll say, well, you know, what, is, what does that actually mean? You know, we look at this whole idea of having sex reserved for a husband and wife in marriage. Well, that's got to be old-fashioned. It can never work. And actually, the opposite is precisely true. Statistically speaking, virgins who get married stay married, and they have better and more sex after they get married. In the ancient world, outside of Israel, there's a lot of these people coming into the church when Christianity is expanding. 
And in this culture, sex was pretty much regarded as like a non-moral, unfettered activity. I mean, there's certain logistical constrictions in this where it's like if you have a very jealous spouse, you don't want them to find out. But really, the whole idea was get as much as you can. Corinth was particularly loose. Uh, there, there was a temple in Corinth that was devoted to the Greek goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And one writer says there were at least a thousand temple prostitutes in this town. So you would go to church, you would have sex, get your business done, and then you would go home. Corinth was regarded in this place as a place of unfettered sexuality. There's a writer, a Greek writer named Aristophanes, and he coined this term called Corinthiazo, which is a euphemism for sex. Today we have a four-letter word. It means the same thing, but it was the same kind of deal. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. That's the kind of idea. So Paul writes to the believers in this town, and he says, if you're a follower of Jesus, your body's going to be a different story. He says, now you have to flee, you have to run, you have to escape, you have to get far away from you. You have to have nothing to do with sexual immorality. And see, and I don't want to be vague on this because a lot of people get all cloudy at this point when you talk about it because they say, oh, I don't want to be involved in sexual immorality. You know, I wouldn't want anything to do with that. And so they just got all cloudy when I talk about it. Okay. A lot of times when people say that, you know, they can be sleeping with their boyfriend or their girlfriend, but they really love each other. So that doesn't really count, does it? Or, you know, I, I, I understand I'm a flea from sexual immorality, but I enjoy visiting certain websites. So that doesn't really count, right? Or we're probably going to get married. So that doesn't really count. Here's the deal. In the scriptures, we do not get to define what sexual immorality is by the way we want to define it. Sexual immorality is sexual intimacy outside of marriage. That is sexual immorality right there. The Bible does not say if you're in love. It does not say if you're probably going to get married. It doesn't say if you're old enough to make responsible, healthy decisions. It doesn't say, no, it's nobody else's business. It says sexual intimacy is reserved for married people, period. That's it. And like in the words of the great theologian Beyonce, you better put a ring on it. All right? (laughs) That's it. You know, and so if we're going to get serious about fleeing from sexual immorality and what that means, we have to know what it actually is. So I'm going to give you a word that kind of defines what it means not, you know, to, to do things right. And it's an old word, and people kind of mess up what it actually means. But it's this word called chastity or chaste. We don't usually use that word a lot today. You know, but that's the Bible's trajectory for us. To be chaste simply means that you live a life where you manage your sexuality in a way that honors God and fits our design. In other words, to be chaste, it's not just unmarried, you know, not having unmarried sex. It includes your whole person. So it includes your behavior, it includes your attitudes, it includes your thoughts, what you choose to feed your mind upon. It includes uh, how you dress and how you present yourself to other people. It means you're grateful that you're made male or female and a sexual being. You seek to keep your body and your sexuality utterly and joyfully submitted to God. Now, another word that people want to throw on top of chaste, which doesn't really go with it, is this word called celibacy. To be celibate means you refrain from sexual activity. In the Catholic tradition, members of the clergy, priests and nuns, are required to be celibate. This is one of the reasons that we're a Protestant church, and I'm a member of the Protestant church because that's never going to happen for me, okay? (laughs) I'm married and I enjoy sex and it's great. The, The truth is everybody, married or single, is called to be chaste. That's our target. It is not celibacy. And I'll tell you one more, another key word about sex. And, and this, is, this is one that, that goes through all throughout the scriptures. That's one of the most important words in the Old Testament. And really one of the ways you can learn about how a culture thinks about sex and sexuality is the words they use to describe it. In our day, you know, we have uh, terms that are coined these days. We say things like, like oh, tap that. 
Oh, did you tap that? Just oh, did you tap? You know, and it's this idea that's like a, it's a commodity you can possess, you can control it. It's like a keg, and I stuck a tap in it. Yeah, or we got another word like doing it. Did you do it? I'm doing it. You do it? I'm doing it. We're all doing it. You know, you got these these words, and it's like you know, it's like casual, or it's like animalness. It's like all biological. And so one of the words the Old Testament uses is this word called yada. That's actually the name of the sermon this morning. It's called it's called yada, and it means to know. And it doesn't just mean sex. You know, it's used 500 times in the Old Testament of all kinds of different knowing other than just sexual knowing. Yada is translated to know, to observe, to study closely, to be a student of. It's actually even used of the word confession because when there is yada in a relationship, that makes relationship. And so it's not this sterile, abstract, distant knowing. There is caring. There is commitment. With yada, it's a personal, experiential, covenantal knowing between two people. Now, I'll tell you how core this is to the Hebrew mind. Open your Bibles. Leave it in 1 Corinthians. Finger there. But open to the book of Hosea. Hosea chapter 2. Hosea is a prophet. His book has a whole lot to say about sexuality and spirituality. Maybe one day we'll go through the book of Hosea for like 20 weeks. No, I'm just kidding. But, you know, we'll go through it at some point. You know, I don't know. Hosea chapter 2. Hosea tweaked a whole lot of people. A whole lot. Even today it still does. People don't even like to read it because they don't, what do I do with that book? Hosea chapter 2, verse 19 God says this. He says, and I will betroth you to me forever. Now, God at this point is talking about his people who have been unfaithful to him. And he says, I am going to betroth you to me forever. Because sexuality and spirituality is woven together. He says, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know, that's the word yada, the Lord. There is something sacramental in this knowing. There is something sacramental in the idea of sex. It's pointing to something else. It's a longing that we all have deeply within us. And this image of a marriage runs all through the scriptures, beginning to the end about what it's supposed to mean, the picture of God knowing his people. Yada is a deeply spiritual word that's used for knowing God in covenant relationship. It's also the word that's used of a man and his wife knowing each other on multiple levels. When Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she can see, that's yada. He knew her in this deep experiential way. To be married means you promise to pursue knowing even when knowing is hard, even when knowing is really, really hard. I mean, one of the great myths about sex in our culture today is that sex is easy. And it's not. On TV or movies or books, you know, we're always being bombarded with all of these images of beautiful, attractive, sexy people with beautiful, attractive, sexy bodies living beautiful, attractive, sexy lives. And real life is completely different than what we see and what we're bombarded with. You know, real relationships, they're about dirty dishes and unpaid bills and watching sick kids and getting housework done and managing job stress and coping with money stress and trying to deal with your goofy in-laws on both sides because you both got them, we know, okay? You know, it's, it's about being worn out. And then you get to the bedroom. And then in the bedroom, you deal with shyness, being afraid to talk about things. You know, how, how are we doing here? What's this working like? You know, is my body really attractive to them? I don't know if they really would find me attractive anymore. Uh, am I ignorant about what pleases them or, or doesn't please them? I've got all these memories of things I've done before, and they, and they get in the way. And then maybe sometimes there's physical problems that all get involved in this. There's all kinds of things. Sex is not just sex, and it's not just easy. Sex is deeply tied to character and relationship and commitment, and deep inside we all know that. This is why some people today wrong for one night stands because they don't want intimacy. They don't want connection. And that was never the point of sex, to not have to be connected to somebody else. It's about intimacy and connection and closeness. Now, my idea of sexy is very different than my wife's idea of sexy. Uh, 
guys' eyes it is usually are, right? <laughs> about six years into our marriage, I realized to her that it is not about my appearance or my achievement or my aftershave, though she really likes it when I don't stink, all right? But it's mostly to her about servanthood. When she feels like I partner with her, that's sexy. When she sees me vacuuming the house without her having to ask me or folding the laundry spontaneously, which doesn't happen that often. It would happen a lot more often if I was smarter, but apparently I'm not, you know, but that then makes me sexy. You see, if you don't make a commitment to know your spouse on every level, it will affect yada. It affects knowing. There's a story of a husband and wife at a communication conference. The instructor comes up and he says, it's essential that husbands and wives know each other, that things are important to each other. And so the, the guy says, now, men, can you name and describe your wife's favorite flower? So this guy leans over and he touches his wife's arm very lovingly and he says, gold medal all purpose, right? Right, and thus began his life of celibacy. This morning, after this, my wife comes up and she's all, what's my favorite flower? And I go, those yellow ones with the black things on it. <laughs> it's funny, yeah, okay. First Corinthians chapter 6, okay, so back there. So it says, flee from sexual immorality, and he says, every other sin, and I, and I like that, really, every other sin, every, every other sin's a different category? Well, it is kind of, not because, you know, God gets more upset about sexual sin, not because it's harder for God to forgive, not at all. He puts it in another category for a reason. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? It's different than every Everything else. In religious communities, they get all weird about this sexual issue. But our bodies and our identities and our sense of self and this whole sex, it's all woven together in ways we can never untangle because it's not just sex. It is why a child can be abused at the age of 7 and 40, 50, 60, 70 years later, they still carry that devastation with them because it's not just sex. Some of you probably even know this firsthand. It's why a woman can have sex forced upon her as an act of violent aggression against her will, and she is shattered to the core of her being. Some of you in this room probably know that. And you know what? It is not just sex. It's why in a marriage relationship, when someone cheats, it is painful because it is not just sex. We must be the kind of people who understand this. That nothing is about a one-moment decision. We must be people who understand that our lives must be powered by God and what He is trying to do in and through us. Because sex, again, is such a pervasive part of who we are in our society. People are made to feel like they don't measure up to society standards for being attractive. And that pain then becomes tremendous in people. We live in a society where girls by the thousands starve themselves and starve their bodies because we idolize sex to such an extent that to be sexy is the ultimate aspiration. You look at magazines now. Sex is the adjective of choice for anything. Any stage of life, object, you know, yourself. It's like, oh, do you have a sexy shirt? I have a sexy toothbrush. I just bought this sexy racquetball racket. I just bought these sexy shoes. Have you seen my sexy car? I mean, everything is all about being sexy. And if you're not sexy, well, then you don't have a life worth being lived. I mean, that's what our call. This is why Paul says the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. This is the idea behind it. And I cannot begin to tell you the devastation that lie causes in our culture today. That, oh, I've just got to learn to be sexy. Oh, I've got to, I've got to be sexy. It is devastating. And I think when I meet people who talk about this, I think how much pain are we willing to bear? You know, we keep going back and drinking from that same well over and over and over, and the well is poisoned. And Christians can be the worst because they never want to talk about it at all. We act like, you know, oh, we got it all figured out. And you, you, aren't we glad that we're all healthy and holy and, and whole people and there's no need for deep confession or repentance or healing here, right? 
No, maybe our secrets are what are killing us as a people. You know, maybe there are couples who come to church week after week after week. They look lovely. They look respectable. And they're all like they all got it all together. But they have not known each other for weeks or months or even years. See, we are all sin damaged. We are all broken. And that includes our sex lives. And this is why Jesus comes to redeem all of us. The scriptures tell us that we are to do our best to present every believer mature in Christ. This means that we ought to be forming relationships, and we try and get those relationships formed inside gospel communities where we trust each other. We have the ability enough to be able to say, I'm scared, I'm hurt, I was abused, I have a secret. Or we can say, I'm out of control. I don't know why I do what I do. I have to have somebody to ask me. I have to have somebody to help me get out of these things we have to be a community where married people and single people are actually living life together because too often if you're single you you get this yeah good luck that's what we tell single people good luck on the sexuality front good luck finding intimacy and affection and touch and connection and loyalty and belonging and being cherished and being known all the things our culture tells you that you are only going to have if you're married or in a sexual relationship This is why we must be a family. This is the whole idea of church. We're a different culture. We do things differently. We pursue knowing each other and loving each other in a way that helps us to live the life that God calls us to live. We pursue a chaste life. And this is way bigger than saying, well, just make a strong will power decision. Really, if we had a campaign like, okay, we're going to make this is our strong will campaign month, everybody would fall because it doesn't work. It is not effective because it doesn't help us enter into community and live a way of life that being chased actually makes sense and makes it be a realistic possibility. It's why we try to have in our GCs married people and single people doing life together so that what our souls crave can be known because you have to be honest with each other. Now, chaste is a really big word. No, yada is a really big word, but even bigger word than those two is this word called repentance. Repentance. Repentance is you're going one direction, and you turn around and you go the other direction. If you're drinking from the well and your life is being destroyed, turn around and go the other way. Stop destroying your life. I mean, if, if you're in this room this morning and you have sexual sin in your past, you never acknowledged it, you never dealt with it, it's, it's eaten you up, repent. If you have had something done to you that is just terrible and you can't get past that, well, you know what, you still take that to God. You lay it at his feet. You get help and healing. Right now, we are working on these things called redemption groups. And we hope to have these things available next year for people. And what it is is understanding that redemption is, affects all of you, that Jesus' death and resurrection redeems all all of us, not just certain parts of us, and that things that we have done in the past or things that have been done to us, all of these things can be redeemed and make whole people. That's the intent of the gospel. Now, if you're a married couple in here and you were you know, messing around before you got married and you just kind of avoided it and never talked about it, but it affects your marriage, well, talk about it. Go home. Get on your knees. Ask God to restore you. If you have dealt with it, keep going forward in honesty and truth. If you're in a relationship today that dis- is dishonoring to God, then leave this service. Write the note. Make the call. Cut it off. Get out of it. Why would you want to continue to do that to yourself? If you're involved in any secret, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how you're admired, no matter how you're looked up to, if there's darkness in you and you can't stop, you must get help. And we would love to be able to be a people who help you to get that help. Because chaste is a big word, no is a big word, repentance is a big word, but the biggest word of all these is the word that's real important about sex or any other issue, and that is the word grace. The word grace. There is grace. This is why Paul at the end of 1 Corinthians 6 says, you are not your own for you are bought with a price. We are not our own. 
Jesus bought us and paid the price for us. There's a God who made us and knows us when we follow Jesus, the Savior who has redeemed us and he will restore us. He sacrificed his body on a tree so our body and our lives can actually be redeemed and be the temple of the Holy Spirit that Paul is talking about. See, sexual sin is not the unforgivable sin. So don't get stuck in shame. You don't get stuck in condemnation. No matter what your history is, it doesn't matter. That is grace. That is grace. Jesus died and rose for you and I, and there is no sin in the world he lacks the power to forgive. There is no regret that you might have walked into this room with that he lacks the power to redeem. What you see in Isaac's life is that Isaac was not wrong. He actually had it right. The right time and the right way, even though in our culture we look, and that's really crazy, 40 years old, and we make it into a movie that's a comedy. And it's not. It's serious because he took his calling seriously. Now, uh, after last service, I, I made this open to a couple people. So I'll do it for you as well. Because uh, a couple people asked me about my notes and stuff. If you would like my notes, maybe you have to have a conversation about this with somebody, like you know, a young kid or something, and you don't know how to do it. Uh, at the Welcome Center, give them your email address. I'm going to clean up my notes so they actually make sense to you. <laughs> and I will, I will send you these, you know, you know, chaste and yada and repentance and grace, and I'll put these things together for you in a way that you hopefully maybe can talk about uh, your kids with it if you want these notes and you need to have the talk and you haven't had the talk. I'm more than willing to do that for you. But on the other side of that, guys, I want you to understand that our God is a God who redeems everything about us, not just little things here and there. We cannot piecemeal our lives out. We are a whole person, and redemption affects our whole person. And so we must be a people who live the lives that Jesus intended us. And this is one of the reasons we talk about communion every single week. Because it's this place where you remember that Christ died and rose for us. That's why you break that cracker like his body is broken for you and I. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and I. So we can be this redeemed whole people. He calls us home. He restores us. He makes us new. The band's going to come up. They'll do a couple songs. And as they do, you are invited to take communion. Uh, you are invited to, uh, in the back, there'll be some deacons and elders. If you need prayer for any of these issues or anything else, whatsoever you can more than have they love to pray with you if you need to grab some help uh we invite you to to talk to them and we'll try and connect you with some people who could actually help uh, we do actually have a, a couple groups going on right now that, that i know of and one uh helps women who have been affected by pornography in their marriages by their husbands we have another group that i know that if you are struggling with things like that we can connect you with them uh and they can help you begin to walk through these things and get some help and some hope uh, guys, I tell you, we worship a God who is good to us. And we must be a people who learn to be good to each other and love him back. Uh, there are offering boxes on the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. Uh, there's food and stuff in the back. We invite you to get to know each other. We'll be yada and not, you know, yada, but yada. You know, get to know each other in, in the back, you know, over, over some food. Uh, and because, again, we do life as a community not as individuals. When we try and do life as individuals, we constantly fail and fall because no one's around us to help hold us up. And God intends for us to live in community with other people. So we try to connect as best we can in community. Um, again, our God is good. Our God is good. And I hope that you will understand what yada with him is like and yada with another person is like and yada with a community is like because that's how our God intends for us to live. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we would be a people who understand the idea of yada and knowing. Father, that you know us as your people and that you have sought us out and you have called us home. 
and that you know every little thing about us, the things we try to hide from other people and the things we quite honestly try to hide from ourselves. You know. And yet, you still want to know us. So I thank you for your grace and your goodness. I ask that you would give all of us in this room the strength to be able to be known by other people as well. To share our lives with those around us. And more importantly, Father, for those who are married in this room, I ask that you would give them the strength to know each other. That they're able to talk about all the issues and all the things that they don't even know how to express. And that you could bring true oneness and true knowing in the relationships in this room. And that we as your people could step outside of these walls and the world around us begin to see what true knowing looks like because we go and offer the grace to those around us that you have offered to us. Father, we ask that we would be a people who bring you great glory by the way we honor your name, by the way we live the lives that you have so graciously bestowed upon us. And Father, when there's rain and devastation that metaphorically hit our lives, have us not despair, because we understand that you are the one who never lets go of us, the one who always has held us, and the one who has walked with us every step of our lives. This morning, Renew us to be the people you call us to be. We ask these things in your son's gracious and good name. Amen.